You're on. Hello, hello, hello. Can you hear me now? How's everybody doing out there tonight? First off, thanks for showing up. Everybody say hi to Randy out there in the audience. Luke, if you can hear me, bark twice. I know you're listening. (laughs) So tonight, 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 we have a super duper special episode with with our new friend, Jamie Kitchen from Dan Foss. Super smart guy. I tried to get him to tell me his title at Dan Foss, but... Canadian. It took way too long. There was like 19 different words, and I was like, I don't know. It's something, something with big words, engineering and testing and coaching and training. I'll let you tell... I'll let Jamie tell you guys what he does here in just a minute. But tonight, we're going to have a long, in-depth, fun-filled, super enjoyous conversation about TXVs. So... I'm going to stop talking, and I'm going to let Mr. Jamie Kitchen introduce himself. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. It's been fun so far. Um, didn't realize we had an interesting conversation going on before the show, so there's like a show before the show, but that was fun. Um, it's calmed down since then. Basically, uh, what I do at Danfoss is I am kind of the outreach person for Danfoss. So... Um, I work in the aftermarket side, so the side that sells to wholesalers, contractors, small OEMs, things like that. Um, I used to sell to major manufacturers. I was an OEM account manager for a while. Before that, I was a field service engineer, and before that, I was an application engineer. So most of the time, I have always been doing something technical. Um, I've been with Dan Foss for about 20 years. Previous to that, it was a mixture of service as well as I taught at Humber College, the program I graduated from. Um, I taught there for almost 10 years. So been around for quite a while. When I started in the trade, R134A and things like that were just coming out. So HFCs were just hitting the market when I started. Hmm. So So did you go from college to the field to in teaching at the college and then ordered Danfoss? Yes. Interesting. So was there a a specific purpose behind that or did you kind of just go with the flow and there was a lot of opportunity at the school, to be honest with you, they were rebuilding the lab. I mean, we have a 30 horsepower parallel pack there in a 4,000 square foot lab. We took over the theater arts. So there was like 30, 30 foot high ceiling. So we put in a lighting ceiling, variable air volume, hydronics, air handlers, um, Lots of basic trainers, and of course, the supermarket refrigeration system was the center of it. So, a lot of work putting that together, maintaining it. Um, I kind of came in part way through, but it, it was a lot of fun, and it gave me a chance to like learn a lot of different things. I did centrifugal teardowns on the weekends. Um, There's always something going on. So, if you wanted to get involved in something you didn't know about, it was quite easy to step in and help out and learn all about it. So that's where I picked up my, a lot of my knowledge outside of just the refrigeration side I picked up from there. So the air side, the large, large tonnage stuff I picked up from there. So now was this in the States or in, uh, this is all in Canada. Yeah. Oh, all in Canada. Interesting. I didn't go to the States until 2006. I moved to Baltimore for a couple of years. My daughter was, was, was uh, born there, but they uh, asked me to come down there and set up a, a training program, internal, external, um, to support the new aftermarket outreach that we were doing at that time. Dan, when I started at Danfoss in 99, we had like $70 million in sales. Now, that's in North America. Now, we're looking at close to $2 billion in sales. Yeah, just in North America or worldwide? That's just in the United States, mostly. Wow. So, 
um, number one market, but all that business is with manufacturers, carrier, York train. We'll talk about six valve, you know, the, the price we sell that for is so low compared to what you would see in the aftermarket. So yeah. you make your money in the aftermarket, you build your volume in the, in the OEM side. So building that aftermarket and making sure that, you know, people replace like for like is important. Well, mm-hmm. people are going to use what they're comfortable with, what yeah. they understand. Uh, I can under, and I can appreciate that completely. I mean, you're not going to take too many risks on unproven things when times of the essence and your reputation. So, Really, right now, we need to make sure people understand it and they're comfortable with it so that, you know, they'll, they'll go with it, basically. Yeah. See, but I'm a little bit different because I'm a brand, uh, I'm an OEM person. So, you know, if I'm doing warranty work or if I'm doing regular work, I'm going to typically go back with OEM components. Mm-hmm. Um, is usually what I do just just for comfort because I know it was designed that way. Yeah. And unless there's some weird freak thing, it, it'll work fine with what's designed. So but you work with a lot of restaurant equipment, right? You were saying, yeah, yeah. Restaurant equipment, um, lots of restaurant. I do air conditioning, refrigeration, all that. So, yeah. um, I mean, you know, I, unless I'm dealing with small prep tables, um, if it's under warranty, we're always using OEM. Sure. If it's, uh, if it's out of warranty, I don't mind changing a dryer going to an aftermarket dryer so long as it's not R290 equipment. R290, you stick OEM for liability reasons, 100%. You don't change anything. So yeah, I just I just convert everything to R290 now that we're talking about that. It's just <laughs> way easier. It's way easier. More efficient, too, let me tell you. A liar. It works with any oil. Yeah, it works, yeah, it works with any oil. works yeah. with any oil. Like the 1970s again, man. Test it for leaks with a Bic lighter, you know? There you go. Hey, there you go. You know, there's people out there that actually do that. And that's, um, I don't, but um, there's people that argue that that's the best way. It's an yeah. interesting way, so... Hmm. Yeah. Remind me not to go on service calls. With yeah, don't, no, because that's not my method. I, but yeah. So yeah. with with Danfoss, Jamie, what would you say is like your area of expertise over there? Um, commercial refrigeration. Yeah. Yeah, commercial refrigeration and and AC. That that's what that falls in. I'm a refrigerant guy. Um, I I don't really. I mean, my weakness is probably the install side. Like I, I sit with the Nate guy, the Nate committee. Mm. Um, for coming up with test questions and stuff like that. And as soon as they start talking codes and things like that, my eyes just glaze over like that. Oh, yeah. That's not my yeah. forte. But if you talk about psychometrics or you talk about anything on the refrigeration side, that's, that's what I know. Psychometrics. I tell you, that is currently one of my weaknesses. Yeah. Psychometrics. That, that'll be another show. Maybe for, for sure. another time. Yep. It's a big word, man. Lots of Scrabble points. Psychometrics. I'd like to learn how to spell it first. Is there an R in it? Psychrometrics? Psychrometrics. That's a good question now that you mention it. Somebody Google that, man. Psycho. Psychro. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think they would call it psychometrics. Psychometrics are the metrics I used to use to measure the chaoticness of old girlfriends, if you will. (laughs) So... I'm not going to comment. Anyway, (laughs) the subject at hand, TXVs. So let's focus on TXVs. Now, psychometrics. Okay. No, TXVs. Okay. So with TXVs, I mean, everybody's heard of them. Everybody knows of them. Everybody's at this point, at this day and age, I'm sure everybody's seen them at some point in their career for the most part, unless you're only Mm -hmm. doing hot side stuff. So real quick. What is a TXV, Jamie? Like, what is it? What does it do? Why was it built? Who was it built for? 
who invented it? I mean, it was built back, actually, <laughs> get a little history lesson here, pre-World War II, um, when refrigeration was kind of taking the step away from a large ammonia systems, you know, ice machine focused, things like that. Um, it was brought in as a better alternative for feeding the um, evaporators. Um, things up to that period of time really wasn't the type of adaptive control that we think of today. Um, the closest thing that was out there was probably an automatic expansion valve. I mean, automatic expansion valves do one thing. They maintain a constant pressure in the evaporator, constant temperature. And they work backwards the way a TEXV works. Mm -hmm. TEXV, it matches refrigerant to load through superheat. So it doesn't give a crap about the evaporator temperature. It will happily feed an evaporator at minus 20 or plus 50 it is only concerned with injecting the amount of refrigerant to reflect the load. So if the load goes up, the balance of force has changed and it injects more refrigerant into the evaporator. And of course, the TXV doesn't operate alone. This affects the rest of the system and that has repercussions for everything. But the balance is that the TXV matches the amount of refrigerant based on load. And it's not a constant superheat valve like... No. Some people think it is. Well, for a long um, time, I thought it was. Well, but, you know, well, I should have said no. Yeah, you got to be careful with that because when I first started, I mean, Dan Foss and Sporlin and Emerton and these guys, they all have a different tact. Um, and there's benefits to both. It all depends on the bulb mixture. Um, mm -hmm. Dan Foss prefers to have a, 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 uh, a, a fixed or, you know, low variability static superheat. That's your opening superheat. Whereas some of the other manufacturers prefer to have a superheat that stays within a narrow range. But any valve you have, the superheat is going to reflect the load. If the load goes up, your superheat's going to go up because you have to press that compress that superheat spring more. Compress a spring more, it pushes back more. Now, right? real quick to jump in here, and uh, you mentioned static superheat. Now, for those of us that don't know, static superheat is, um, if I remember correctly, it's, it's just the, the amount of, I guess, superheat needed to overcome the spring pressure and to begin the opening process of That's the TXV. Right. So an aftermarket TXV, universal TXVs, they generally have a higher static superheat than OEM valves do for obvious reasons. So if it's seven degrees of superheat, that is the temperature equivalent that the spring pushes up at. So mm. you need at least seven degrees of super. Your refrigerant has to be seven degrees warmer than the temperature it boils at before you can overcome that um, static pressure or that, that spring pressure and start to open the valve. So it's closed. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Hmm. So um, sort of a, a side question here. A majority of us are already familiar with the inner components of a TXV. Mm -hmm. is, is there anything besides, like, I don't know, this sounds stupid, but any sort of hidden components that really aren't uh, explained to technicians, maybe on the engineering side of things? I mean, we know there's a needle, a diaphragm, a spring, um, pressure discs. Um, like, is there anything else inside of a standard TXV that maybe nobody knows about, like a secret part, little... Well, yeah, I mean, we have the internal external equalization. We can get into that in a little bit, but the bulb mixture is probably the biggest, you know, chemistry mystery of all because that's true. The bulb yeah. mixture determines basically how the TXV is going to work. So, you talk about ice machines. You know, we manufacture an ice machine charge. 
that maintains a specific superheat pattern over a wide ranging evaporator temperature. So picture an ice machine. The, the water comes in, your evaporator is slightly colder than the water temperature, right? So mm-hmm. you start your cycle with a high evaporator temperature just before harvest, your loads dropped off into the toilet, you have a very relatively low evaporator temperature. Well, yeah. your superheat has to track that without flooding the compressor or starving the evaporator and, and, and reducing your ice manufacture. So believe it or not, most manufacturers, OEMs, utilize a TXV with a static superheat of like one or one and a half degrees. Very, very low. Really? So, and that goes with AC too as well. They assume the AC load is going to be relatively high. They have a very low static superheat. So when you replace one of those OEM TXVs with an aftermarket, the aftermarket TXV probably has a much higher factory static superheat setting. Our universal AC valves have seven degrees. Universal refrigeration valves have five to seven. So a lot of times much higher than what the – because we're, the, the technician doesn't have access to a lab and test equipment and everything else to make sure this thing is perfectly balanced. So we have to err on the side of caution by increasing the static superheat. So, so if, go ahead. So if somebody uh, switched out one of these OEM valves with a uh, whatever valve they had on their, on their truck, one of this guys say seven or eight um, mm-hmm. static superheat uh, level to it, would they, I would assume that they would you know, run the system, kind of see something look kind of funky compared to how it originally ran, and they would end up having to adjust that non-OEM valve? Is that... Yes, you can do all. Most OEM valves are non-adjustable. Hmm. The part of the risk, two, two, two points to that. Number one, from a manufacturer's standpoint, they've already tested it and optimized it, right, for most of the applications. Number two, if you've got a one and a half degrees of static superheat, if you dial that down, there's no room for error. There's no room to reduce that. So you will instantly put that thing into a hunting um, situation. Uh, Most people don't realize this, but evaporators have something called minimum stable superheat. And it could be three degrees, four degrees, five degrees, depending on the load. So you ever notice if you reduce a TXV superheat setting too much, it'll start to hunt. That tells you that the evaporator has become unstable, that the superheat hmm. present is below the minimum stable superheat. So the recommendation is crank up the superheat a half a degree or a degree until it stabilizes and watch it through a cycle. I used to do this all the time with students. We'd loosen the sensing bulb up on the trainers, have them reduce the superheat site on the valve until it started to hunt. And then I just get them to back it back out again until it stabilized and away they go. So that way they were, at least they were familiar with it. So would you say this is kind of a sidetrack question, but as far as the the sensing bulb charge, is that one of the the is that like super guarded as far as what you guys have your proprietary blends inside there? Because I imagine that you and other manufacturers all have different blends. Yes, we do. I mean, I don't proprietary, but yeah, we don't exactly put that mixture anywhere. If you were to go and talk to the the guys in the factory who are really smart, yeah. um, they would not just blurb that out to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a super secret mixture, right? Cause that's what differentiates. Cause you guys, your TXPs essentially all work the, the same except mm-hmm. for the, the, the charge blends is what really different. Well, they're all cross charged now, which means you've got a mixture of system refrigerant, nitrogen, yeah. and a bunch of other stuff in there because you have to account for the fact that the pressure temperature relationship isn't constant. Your super eight spring is, 
but yeah. the, the the pressure change for a given temperature is different at minus 20 for an ice cream freezer than it is for an AC machine, right? So that's where the cross-charge bulb comes in. So you have some refrigerants boil quicker at low temp, while some don't boil off till higher temperature. So you maintain a, a more or less steady opening superheat across the range. Now, what do you mean by cross-charge? I guess I've never heard it okay. that way. If you were to charge a sensing bulb with system refrigerant, mm-hmm. and let's say you got a 404A system, so you shove some 404A in the sensing bulb and fire the system up. Well, TXVs are rated at 40 degrees nominal. So when you buy a one-ton nominal TXV, that's rated at 40 degrees. It'll give you half a ton at minus 20, right? Same as a compressor. Well, that sensing bulb, if your static superheat set for seven degrees, that's how much pressure that the, that superheat spring is pushing, equivalent. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. The problem is that that same pressure at minus 20 or minus 30 is going to require about 15 degrees of temperature change to give you that same pressure change. So your static superheat would go from seven degrees to 15 or 18 degrees at low temp and probably be, you know, five degrees at plus 50. So you would have a real issue at low temp if you just use the the straight refrigeration charge again, because the, the pressure temperature relationship isn't constant. It, it, it differs at low temp compared to high temp. Interesting. That goes, and you see that in thermostats and everything. Well, that's why the differential for a thermostat is different at low temp than it is at high temp because of that, that same pressure temperature relationship. Hmm. Yes. Speaking of uh, sensing bulbs and how they're charged, I recently came across a walk-in cooler and uh, the evaporator had some issues with the TXV. I I just had to adjust a little bit, basically. But the one thing I did notice, and I wasn't sure how greatly this would affect the system, the sensing bulb was mounted vertically on the the suction line going up and the capillary, capillary tube was coming out of the bottom. When I got there, now I was always under the understanding that you want it coming out of the top if you have to mount it vertically, mm-hmm. so that you don't get that liquid kind of uh, clogging up or um, I don't really know what it would be. Doing. A sensing bulb, period. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, how would that affect the TXV operation, though? Because I would kind of assume. I mean, the sensing bulb capillary tube is sealed to the diaphragm, so like my way of thinking, like, well, it probably wouldn't make that big of a difference, but. I guess if you have the majority of the refrigerant sitting on top of the diaphragm and not in the actual bulb, you're not going to accurately sense that suction line, which may explain why my TXV was adjusted way out of whack. Well, there's a couple of sides to that. Number one, I mean, the amount of surface area in the sensing bulb that's making contact is very small. So when you flip the sensing bulb uh, vertically, any if the liquid refrigerant in their liquid bulb charge is free to move, if there's no absorber in there, it's going to drain to the bottom, which is going to really reduce the contact with the pipe. Now, most people don't realize this, but between 50 and 60% of the heat that the bulb absorbs doesn't come from the pipe. It actually comes from the bulb strap because the bulb strap covers a much larger surface area than the sensing bulb hmm. strap. And when you insulate it and you don't use duct tape or zip ties or some other stupid thing to yeah. put it on, right, you know, the rule is – if it conducts electricity, it conducts heat. So stick it in the wall side. Wait, so yeah. no, no duct tape. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, it's not two in one. It's not insulation and. Yeah, yeah. What and about flex seal? I mean, you can slap that on anything. Let's 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 clear this up too. Don't use strictly insulation tape either. 
Okay. I, I, the things I've seen in the field, I even have some OEMs that do some silly things too, that do a zip tie and some insulation tape. Hmm. And then six months down the line, that bulb is nice and loose and just floating around on that suction line. So, you know, yeah. um, residential ADP coils, um, they ship them with the bulb on the header piece, um, in the coil in like a case mm-hmm. coil and mm-hmm. i've like i would say good 80 percent of coils i run into they're installed by other companies they just leave it there uninsulated you know i always pull them out pull them out front of the coil because there's not a good place to actually strap them onto mm-hmm. and then insulate it i don't know if adp like if that's just like a shipping method you that's know what or, i would assume when i see yeah. that because you want it you don't want to floating around because you know what's going to happen right yeah yeah, yeah, it'll come in two pieces. Right? But I, I, I just don't think guys re- realize to pull it off and actually strap it to the pipe and insulate it, you know, because you, I see it all the time. You open up the coil, there it is, not insulated, you know. Yeah, I yeah. can't tell you how many times I've come across split systems on the commercial side where the sensing bulbs are literally just sitting in the air. Mm-hmm. Just, just and it's like what who there's no startup on this like what did you know I, I wonder how big of a difference it would make insulated versus uninsulated because you still yeah. have the contact it's of the strap you know it's a good question it, it, it depends on a couple of factors um number one how much humidity is in the air you may think okay well how, how does wet bulb humidity have to do if it's a sensible thing well the amount of moisture in the air determines how low of the air temperature is going to be coming off the evaporator. If you have a high latent heat, then your your dry bulb depression coming across the coil is going to be reduced because you can't drop the sensible temperature if you got to pull this moisture out. Mm-hmm. So that means that you're going to have a higher dry bulb temperature coming off your coil. That's going to drive your valve open more and putting more refrigerant in. Um, if you have an oversized valve now how do i what do i mean by oversized valve well there's a lot of manufacturers that will use a three two and a half and two ton or sorry a three ton txv and a three two and a half and two ton unit they may even have different code numbers on the txv but they're all the same because most txvs will throttle down to 40 percent capacity without blinking an eye right as long as you wait for it the sensing bulb is mounted properly and insulated. If mm. you have a higher temperature on your sensing bulb and you have a larger TXV than needed, it's just going to overfeed that much refrigerant more. And if you happen to have a low load or some other issue happens, you can flood the compressor sometimes. So, yeah, it's an issue. Speaking about wow. uh, flooding compressors... Should I bring up my little experiment, my failed experiment? Oh, it, yeah. I was going to bring it up anyway, so I'm glad yeah. you did. I mean, Jamie's an engineer, so he's probably going to tell you everything you did wrong with big words, too. All right. So I, I kind of was, um, I, I've been meaning to make a video on it for a while, and I haven't done it yet, which I'm kind of glad because it just crashed and burned yesterday. All right. Yeah, it happens. So I had the, the brilliant idea to... I have a furnace that I hung from the ceiling in my in my garage, and I have mm-hmm. a evaporator coil, and I ran line set down into the house, um, and I teed it into the line set right before the coil, um, you know, for my my home air conditioning, and I have a liquid line solenoid on each. It's a two stage condenser. I have if the garage turns on, it's a two ton um, two ton evaporator. I have, um, it's only going to run on first stage if 
the garage is on by itself. The house has the ability to run in first or second stage. Um, and if they're both on at the same time, it'll automatically kick it to second stage, how I have it wired up with relays. It worked great until it didn't, you know, <laughs> which was yesterday. So um, my question is, I the compressor, I the valves are gone. The valves are gone. That's my project for tomorrow, okay? And I was kind of questioning. We actually had a little discussion about this last night. I did not add an accumulator. And I was, you know, Joe kept telling me from the beginning, add an accumulator, add an accumulator. I'm like, eh, it's an 18 sphere. The thing's like seven feet tall. It's going to be a pain to add an accumulator, you know? Um, so I didn't do that. And another thing that just came to me too, which we kind of had a brief discussion unrelated about this earlier, is bleed versus non-bleed TXVs. And my mm -hmm. thought is, in the off cycle, this, the liquid line solenoids shut immediately, and the pressure in the high side line, the liquid line, it stays high mm -hmm. immediately after shutdown. And I was wondering, is that going to have a, an effect on the scroll? You know, no, no scrolls start unloaded. Um, when they first fire up, they require a certain amount of pressure underneath the mobile scroll to lift it up and seal it. Mm -hmm. So when you first fire it up, you've only got some centrifugal forces that are helping to seal the scroll. So you really can't build a lot of pressure or move a lot of mass of refrigerant. So what happens is there's a ramp. Once it starts up, you make that initial seal, it comes up to speed. And once it comes up to speed, then it builds enough pressure that underneath the scroll that you bleed off that some of that discharge gas underneath the scroll or intermediate pressure gas that lifts it up and provides the final seal. And once that happens, it's already up to speed. You're good to go because your rotor's turning, right? So you're not going to draw locked rotor ramps. That's the difference between a scroll and a recip. Hmm. Yeah, they start unloaded most of the time. Usually, usually you don't need start hardware with a with a um, a, a scroll compressor unless you're running a, like a high pressure, high differential heat pump or something like that. See, I've run into actually the train. The um, this is an older model. It's probably like five years old uh mm -hmm. an 18i it's the two-step compressor and i've installed several of those where they it starts like a a mac truck it's like a bang when it starts you know what i mean mm -hmm. and it has start components built into it mm -hmm. um and i just several of them we, we have installed i've experienced this so I, I i actually replaced the start components with something a little bit stronger and it usually takes care of it right okay. so um I don't know what 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 are your thoughts on what happened? You think I was flooded? I was flooding liquid back? Well, you must like, add an increased refrigerant charge to make up for the extra coil volume, correct? Yeah, I mean, so and lines because the lines themselves were okay. substantially longer so, as well. You have a receiver on this unit. Is it a TXV that's on the system? No, he doesn't have a receiver. No, he's so running it off. Of the variable volume for the refrigerant. You add refrigerant. Your compressor only has a specific amount of refrigerant system charge that it can handle before they recommend putting the crankcase heaters and suction line accumulators in there. So what, what can end up happening is you're going to get a lot of off-cycle migration. That's right. Scrolls will handle mm -hmm. plug. Everybody knows that, right? Yep. The issue is the main bearing for a scroll is up under the mobile scroll at the, at the bottom. That's the furthest away from the oil sump. So you got the centrifugal oil pump that runs up to it. It can't pump foam. So if you have off-cycle migration. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. DOE oil is sinister that way. It will pull in the vapor and the refrigerant, 
and it will separate, allowing the liquid refrigerant to go to the bottom and keeping virgin oil in the top, just so it can keep sucking that refrigerant in. And as soon as you start up, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to create you know, shaving cream in the bottom of the, uh, the, the stump of the, refrigerant, the compressor. So you can't pump that. Any refrigerant that separates is going to go up inside that, that uh, oil pump, is going to dry clean the upper bearing. So a lot of times we will see get compressors back that have failed. You shake them, and it sounds like a whole bunch of loose parts in there. Yeah. You open them up, and they are pristine clean inside, with the exception that it looked like a bomb went off. Because there's going to be, you know, parts and pieces everywhere. The scrolls will blast it all to hell, you name it. Because when that bearing seizes, <laughs> the scroll ain't going to stop. It's got this huge counterweight off to the side, right? Well, that inertia is going to cause those two scrolls to move. What happens is you smash that old coupling that stops the scroll from rotating rather than orbit. And as soon as it starts to rotate, they lock up. And that huge mass moving at like a million miles an hour when those scrolls lock up, they just explode. That so is that, awesome. That's basically what happens inside. Now, so, by running a crankcase heater, which... Crankcase heater would, hap- would help with the some of the off-cycle migration if it has enough wattage. But it's more or less... The job of a crankcase heater is, is really one thing. It raises the vapor pressure of the oil. You wonder what the heck I'm talking about, vapor pressure. But if the off-cycle migration of, of refrigerant takes place because the vapor pressure of the oil is lower than the refrigerant. So the refrigerant just migrates into the oil and gets sucked up. If crankcase heater heats the oil up 10, 15, 20 degrees above the saturation temperature of the refrigerant. In other words, the temperature of the system when it's, when it's off, right? If it's 40 degrees out and you keep your sump at 60, there's no way in heck refrigerant's going to migrate there because the pressure's too high in the oil, right? But then so with that... With that though, too, you're with that heater. You're fighting the ambient temperatures. Like he's in Chicago, where it's you know negative twenty degrees sometimes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, That's why we're, they're going away away from the belly band. They're going to like this diaper thing that fits to the bottom of the of the compressor. That actually heats the whole bottom. Yeah. Right? Oh, wow. You know, plus it lowers noise by about three dBA for what it's worth. So this but is kind of a question. Off cycle migration. If it's draining back. I don't know how much it's going to help because you can only boil off so much refrigerant, right? What about a check valve or just a accumulator? An accumulator is probably your best bet. And if you really want to be fancy with it, wrap the discharge line or something around it to put some heat into it. Or better yet, put the crankcase heater on there maybe. But On the um, accumulator. Otherwise, you're going to fill your receiver up with refrigerant with a charge that big, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I would like the record to show. I think me and Joe mentioned an accumulator at the beginning of Adam's project. Uh, yeah. yeah. You might want to go back and look at the chat because I think that's actually, you know what? I didn't chat it. I think I, I verbally said it in our verbal discussion. Probably did. I, I think, we all, I think did. Yeah. we all did. So. I, was just, I was just wondering, Adam, what is your superheat on that application? Because the reason why I asked is because if he has two TXVs, correct? Yeah. Yes. Wouldn't they be kind of fighting each other depending which or what kind of TXVs they are? Well, especially with without a receiver because you you don't have any more refrigerant in the or well you've got too much refrigerant in the system potentially when one coil shuts down right. 
Right. You're relying on the fact that it's AC and your coils are going to be relatively at the same oversized because yeah. you have you do have a high sear unit, so it is going to be a way oversized mm-hmm. condenser, right? Well, and, and the coil, and the, the evaporator is huge. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually yeah. running a four ton evaporator. A four or is it a five ton? Four ton evaporator, I think, for a three ton. So you don't have any humidity there? Um, no, there's humidity here. I mean, I don't have many much humidity issues in the house. Uh, it it spiked mm-hmm. recently when I had drain tile installed, but, um, cause those big a coils, uh, combined with the reduced compressor capacity, cause you're splitting it is going to drive your saturation temperature and your evaporator up. And it's going to be high enough that your dehumidification is going to blow. Well, see, I, I'm not using this all the time. Do you like the, the whole thought process behind it was if I'm working outside in the garage, I'll use it at that time and then it'll be off okay. or okay. like, you know, Friday nights, mm-hmm. I'll have it on for an hour or whatever. It's not like it's not on. My garage is not insulated. It's not on. You know what I mean? Right. So, um, and the garage, it's when it cycles, it cycles, it's small. It's a small garage. So it's just trying to get right. the, you know what I mean? It's not like it's running for long periods of time. That's interesting. Small, right? it's like it's 10 cars, like not that, no, not that. I have a two car garage, but you know what? <laughs> I was, I was playing around with it a little bit when I first started charging it. Cause I wasn't sure how to charge it. Cause if you think about it, it's really odd. Like normally you're going to want to charge a two stage compressor in high, high stage you know, second stage. Right. Um, and then do I charge it with the house running in second stage or, and then like, so I was like, kind of run it with both units running. Cause you're going to charge the sub cooling. Well, that's what I was doing. I I was switching back and forth. So I checked the house and then I add, I turned on the garage, checked it. And then I turned back on the house to see what the different, you know, what, and I got it to a point where, it was close to 10. It, like sometimes it might jump a little bit over 10 subcooling. I can't remember what that unit calls for. It's either 9 or 11 or something like that. It's probably lower if it's a sear. What did you say it was? It's 18 sear. Maybe it's a 9. I don't remember, yeah. to be honest with you. But it was like very close. It was plus or minus 3 on each of them if both of them were running or one was running. Like it, it didn't look abnormal whatsoever when I was running. That's interesting. That tells yeah. you that you may not have a ton of refrigerant going into one of the coils, but... Because you think it would starve the condenser, right? If you, uh, but if you charge the both of them, I just can't believe how you can run one of those coils and not the other one without a receiver. But that, by definition, yeah, I don't know either. I was confused. Where's it gonna go? Yeah, yeah, it's got nowhere yeah. to go, man. I, I'm surprised yeah. your head pressure didn't like go through the roof, man. It's just stacking in the condenser. Yeah, it's not like everybody's backing up in the condenser. That's true. Actually, I never thought of yeah. it. The, yeah, it's the, just stacking. I mean, that's the whole residential high sear. It's just stacking in the condenser. And, yeah. and that coil is huge. That unit's like five feet tall. Yeah, you know? <laughs> no, it's true. I never thought uh, about it. Right. Yeah, your see, I, I'd be curious to see what your sear numbers, uh, you want to get super crazy on it, get one of those fancy redfish meters and well, watch what your EER numbers ha- do when when one coil calls, when the other coil calls. Well, that's what I, I was actually talking to Jim Bergman about that. And he said what you could, I, what I could actually do if I have enough, uh, you know, devices, job link devices. I could actually check both evaporator coils at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those Bluetooth ones, they're awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, they are. So I want to um, segue a little bit. Are you cool if I segue, Adam? Do mm-hmm. it. So I have a question, Jamie. So you know, coming up in the '90s when I came up in the trade, working with my dad, um, that was when we had the first introduction of these uh, retrofit refrigerants, uh, 409A, 408A. They were replacing R12 
R502. Um, and I'm pretty confident I know what the thing was, but when we had these retrofit refrigerants or drop-in refrigerants, as we called them at the time, one of the common things was when you would go to the supply houses, again, I've learned not to trust supply houses because supply houses really aren't the, they, they're, they're just preaching what other technicians have told them has worked. But supply houses constantly told you when you were using some of those drop-in refrigerants, and it's still kind of blended into today that you don't clear a sight glass on those retrofit refrigerants when you're working with an expansion valve system because you'll have overload problems and different things like that. Now, I've learned that, and, and I've always preached, no, that with an expansion valve, you have to have a solid column of liquid going to the expansion valve for it to work correctly. Would that be a correct statement? If you have a TXV and you're charging the subcooling, that is really what would be my biggest concern would be that you have enough subcooling because here's the thing. If you have flash gas getting to your meter device, your TXV, your evaporator temperature is not going to be stable. Right. I mean, right. you, you're, you're, you're going to have, and one of the easiest ways to tell, like, for example, 410A, it hasn't got a lot of glide, but I'll use the example. The one of the easiest ways to tell if your 410A system is undercharged is because it's unstable, right? Your evaporator temperature isn't constant because you don't have enough subcooling coming out of your condenser to overcome the resistance of the pipe. If you have enough subcooling, I don't care what you see in the sight glass, right? You're going to be fine as far as the TXV goes. You should have a solid column of liquid. Now, with 407C with a high glide, to be honest with you, I don't know if I have an answer for you because it's, it's a good question. I can remember charging 407C systems and having a solid sight glass, usually when I had around 9 to 10 degrees of subcooling. And that's more than a lot of times the glide is. So okay. if your, your subcooling is greater than the glide, that means that, you know, every refrigerant should have condensed back then. You're not going to have any, you know, leftovers that are still percolating through the liquid line. So, so I come from the refrigeration side where clear sight glass is king. Yeah. Um, and my, my idea of what was going on with it, again, stepping back to the 90s, when we were dealing with 409A and 408 the first retrofit refrigerants that were popular, you know, coming out and then you had hot shot and a bunch of different ones. But my thing is, is that the systems were never designed for those refrigerants and those refrigerants mm -hmm. weren't as optimized as today. Today we have refrigerants that were, are, are, are built a lot better basically. Mm -hmm. And we were installing, let's just say 409A in uh, R12 replacement uh, that ran ridiculously high head pressure compared mm -hmm. to R12, mm -hmm. you know? So, so the condenser was undersized in that case. So in theory, we needed a clear sight glass, but if we cleared the sight glass, we would be way overcharged. Mm -hmm. We would be going off on thermal overload. Now, the reason why I bring this up is even to this day, when you go into a supply house with some of these newer retrofit refrigerants, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus because it's not the refrigerants problem, in my opinion, because if you follow manufacturer's instructions from each one of those retrofit refrigerants, they tell you to do different things to make sure the system's adequately sized. But the mm -hmm. supply houses tend to tell us, oh, yeah, you just put in 80% of the charge and you're good to go, you know, and you, you hear that from them. But my thing is, is that a, an expansion valve needs a solid column of liquid going to the expansion valve, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's, that's, and, and, you know, charging to subcooling essentially is the same thing, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Now, another thing that I find with people is 
And that's, that's a hard thing to relay, whether you're making a video or you're trying to tell someone is, is just because you have a clear sight glass doesn't mean you have a solid column of liquid going to the expansion valve because the sight glass is only a window at that point in the system. You could have all, all kinds of things happening. You'd but, be amazed what happens in your liquid line. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you could have crazy pressure drops across them. I mean, you know, and you know, most of our manufacturers install a sight glass from the factory. You probably buy a pre-built unit. It's put on the roof. The sight glass is two inches away from the dryer, you know, and it's 47 feet away from the evaporator mm-hmm. where the expansion valve is located. So all kinds of things happen in between. But is it a safe thing to say that you you do need a solid column of liquid going to your guys' expansion valves, right? I mean, that's pretty much all across the board, right, for the expansion valve to work properly. We'll always tell you that you need a solid column of liquid. Yeah. 100% of the time coming to the expansion valve because a meter, a meter device like a TXV, the orifice is so tiny, even in the yeah. bigger ones, you're not going to get enough vapor through there to give you any capacity. Um, so the, here's, here's the thing. It, just to simplify it, there's a couple of things to look at. If you want to troubleshoot this, let's, let's take a step back and look at the, the, at the, at the liquid line. If you have... The, the correct amount of subcooling coming out of your condenser, mm-hmm. let's say eight, nine degrees, your refrigerant charge is not a problem. If you have subcooling according to the manufacturer's specification, don't be adding refrigerant. If you have a feeding issue into the evaporator, it's like an electrical thing. If you have 24 or 26 volts come out of your control transformer and you got zero volts at your compressor relay coil, right? You don't put two transformers in. Right, so why would you add more refrigerant just because you don't see refrigerant at the TXV? If you have voltage at your transformer, if you have uh, subcooling at your condenser, your charge is fine. What you need to do is figure out what's happening to that subcooling. Where's your pressure drops in the system that's yeah, going yeah. to disappear? So you go down the liquid line, right, or you work up the liquid line. But the first thing you need to do is ascertain your subcooling. King is subcooling with TXVs. So from there, you can use your eyes, your ears, your hands, and you know, or some thermocop thermistors, and you figure out where the pressure drop is. I've seen stuff as obvious as filter dryers that are sweated or frozen on the outside. Yeah, yeah. Right. I've heard solenoid valves squealing because they're stuck partially closed. Yeah. Ball valves sweating because somebody didn't fully open it. All kinds of things can happen. Don't ignore that side. If you have flash gas at your meter device. If you have uh, subcooling at your liquid, find out where the pressure drop in the liquid line is. If you have a solid column of liquid at the condenser and the meter device going in, and you're still underfeeding, now it's an issue with the TXV. Makes sense. Right? Yeah. So now you got to figure out what's going on there. So when you're looking at your evaporator, and you want to determine what the problem is if you're underfeeding. Low evaporator pressure tells you one thing. You're not putting enough refrigerant into the evaporator. That's all that tells you, right? Mm -hmm. Because in order to balance the pumping capacity of the compressor, the pressure has to drop, right, till they match up. Number two, if you have high superheat, that just means you don't have enough refrigerant in the evaporator to match the load, right? That says nothing about the system charge whatsoever. That is just a snapshot at the evaporator. So now you know you don't have enough refrigerant in the evaporator. You don't have enough refrigerant for the load. Number two is you need to determine your refrigerant charge. That's where your subcooling comes in. So if you have high superheat, low evaporator pressure, high subcooling, you don't have a refrigerant charge problem. 
you have an issue at the metering device or somewhere upstream. So that's, that's essentially how you're going to read that. So again, three pieces of information determine system charge, right? Subcooling is king in that one. So yeah. the only time you add charge is if you get verification with that subcooling. Don't do it outside of that. Now, if you have a low evaporator temperature and low superheat, that's a different thing altogether now, right? If you have a low, um, if you have a TXV with low um, evaporator pressure, low superheat, that's not a refrigerant issue. That's a load issue, correct? Because the TXV recognizes the lower load, it throttles closed. And when it throttles closed, it's going to drop your evaporator temperature. Yeah. So dirty air filters, ice, yeah. your, uh, your evaporator looks like an ice block. Right? All these kind, yeah. you've lost your, you've lost your, okay. Let's take an A-coil, for example. All right. A-coil is easy. Operates at 45, 46 degrees, maybe high 30s, low 40s in Florida where you want it to humidify. All right. If you have a dirty air filter or you're pushing 200 CFM a ton, first thing this TXV is going to do is throttle closed. It's not going to flood the compressor, but your evaporator temperature is going to drop. Now, two things are going to cause that evaporator temperature to drop. Loss of charge, right? plug TXV or low load, low load, low superheat, the entire coil is going to be frozen. If you have low refrigerant, you know, plug TXV, low charge, you're going to have frost at the inlet of the evaporator with high superheat leaving the evaporator. So two ways that you can tell the difference there. So if your coil is covered in frost, right, that's a load issue and a defrost issue. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I have anybody have any more questions about that? Because I'm going to change to something different right now, too. No, I, changed. No. I was going to go on the resi side, too, but go ahead. Okay, so uh, on an OEM side, Jamie, mm -hmm. without naming any, uh, not throwing anybody under the bus, not naming any um, uh, certification programs or anything like that, have you guys as an OEM, I don't know if you know this, have you guys noticed um, a, a, a decrease in failed or, or what, how do I want to say this right? Uh, with all the new certification programs, the whole point of the certification programs was to reduce warranty, uh, fit, um, incorrect warranty. Well, we push them hard. That's, that's the sole reason we push them hard. Yeah. Okay, so have you noticed a decrease in, in incorrectly diagnosed mm -hmm. warranty parts? Uh, good question. Um, not, any, not throwing anybody. Well, I, I'm going to say yes, okay. but it isn't huge. When I first started out, um, it, I worked the warranty pile. That was a junior engineer's job. And yeah. the best thing about working the warranty pile was you learned why stuff failed. Everybody hated that job, right? But you learned why everything failed. And it's true. I mean, one third no fault found, one third drowned, one third, you know, baked or whatever. Right? Yeah. So generally speaking, the cooked ones are because of loss of charge or, you know, the guy's running 6,000 PSI in his condenser or something like that. Hmm. The flooded ones are generally, um, uh, overfilling the evaporator. A lot of times it was because of flood back, things like that. No fault found a lot of times was, was basically because they, you know, measured between the internal overload or something along those lines. They pulled things up. I would say we've probably seen, if I had to put a number on it, 10, 15%. Because a lot of times you can give guys all kinds of tests and they'll pass them. That doesn't mean that it's being incorporated in the field. Yeah. Right. I mean, your, your nature is what it is. So the main thing you can, only thing we can do is just push the importance of it. Why are we doing this? Well, 
you know, from a selfish standpoint, you know, it lowers the warranty costs. It reduces the cost of doing business. But from a service side, you have to look at it from how valuable is my time? What am I doing with my time? If I'm reducing callbacks, if I'm improving the feedback I'm getting in social media, all these kinds of things, um, that has an impact. But you have to see that value. That value has to be shared with the individual technician. If it's only going to benefit the owner of the company, then as a technician, why should he spend more time, put himself behind the eight ball, right, if there's if there's really no benefit to him inside of that, right? So there, there's always that balance, right? Some people are always going to do what's right. Some people aren't. But that's that's the way I see it. You know, how do we get people to actually incorporate what they know? Well, the easy way to do it is, Show them a benefit. Yeah. If you ever watched the videos and that from Appion, right, with Dave and those guys. Why would I want to use three-eighths inch hose? Why would I want to, you know, not use my manifold gauge? Why do I want to use a micron gauge? Well, with a micron gauge, you can in a core removal tool and three-eighths inch hoses, you're actually gonna get most of that five CFM out of your vacuum pump. Yeah. Right. As opposed to your manifold gauges. Right, which was one of the worst thing ever invented. You get two, three CFMs at that. Whoa, dude! Oh, yeah. You get a half, <laughs> half a CFM. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Low. I knew that it was. It's ridiculously yeah. low. Yeah. I mean, we're buying yeah. these giant vacuum pumps yeah. that uh, essentially aren't doing anything because we're through a certain stick. Right, it's really yeah. what you yeah. have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I mean, when you when you say things like that, the guy's like, "Oh crap, man! I can save time." Yeah. Not only are you going to save time, but when you evacuate the 500 microns, guess what? You can also determine if there's a leak in the system at the same time. Yeah. Right. Determine if you have moisture in the system at the same time. And if you purge with dry nitrogen, you're going to save yourself a ton of time on dehydration. So you throw all these bones and systematic things in there. Suddenly it's a win-win situation for everybody. Right. That's really how you have to bring it to the market. And you can even use one of those little tiny Navac pumps if you're doing it the right way. <laughs> Absolutely. You can. Yeah. 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 I call them 50 pounds of spent uranium up on the roof, right? That's mm-hmm. what it's yep. like, man, you know? Yep. But yeah, yeah naturally, I'm a lazy technician. I, I genuinely don't want to have to take a lot of stuff up to the roof. So if I can reduce the load that I have to carry Absolutely. up by using a small vacuum pump or by this is my my high horse i like to do flare dryers on the roof because i don't want to take my torches up to change dryer when i'm fixing a leak downstairs i i'm naturally lazy and it's that's you make your own flares or you buy them pre-made i don't really care i'm just asking it depends it depends i don't mind using the pre-made flares but i always inspect them before um but i have no problem making my own too so today i did a job where i used two pre-made flares because i had them in my little tort my little uh fitting case but Mm -hmm. I, w- I had four flares, pre-made ones, three-eighths flares in there. And I looked at them and I said, you know what? I don't like those two. So I'm going to take those back to the supply house. And I use the two pre-made, you know, the other two. So. I just asked you because, you know, we sell sweat valves and we sell some flare valves. And you'll find guys love flare valves. Most of them are a bit older, but they just love flare valves for the same reason you just said. They hate using the torch, especially if it's in a confined area. You don't have a lot of backspace to worry about the spillover from the flame and things like that. They love them. Other yeah. guys hate them. Because now, I won't them. use a flare TXV. I won't use a flare TXV to save my life. Um, Why, though? The com- expansion and contraction, and uh, I find that on the low temp stuff, they'll back off. 
Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay. That, that's my conclusion. Now, um, to be fair, I do not use a torque wrench. I've never used a torque wrench in my life. I use the <laughs> torque wrench on my elbow. It clicks when it's tightened to so the perfect tightness. So nice. uh, to be completely fair, you know, maybe I'm not doing it correctly, but I've used flare nuts my entire career. Um, and I, again, coming up in the late mid to late nineties, um, there was tons of flare valves. In fact, most, uh, evaporator coils for refrigeration equipment for walk-ins and things came with flare nuts on them in the nineties. That's, that's how it was. But, um, on low temp, I learned, especially on reaching coolers and, uh, walk-in freezers, I never use flare. That's a big temperature swing when you think about it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and I don't like the expansion and contraction on the uh, the low side. Now, on a roof, all day long, I will use a flare nut on a dryer just because I'm extremely lazy and I don't want to take my torches up there. So that's my thing. To get back to the certifications, um, for everybody that's watching, the whole point, again, the, the, the whole point of the industry certifications, the way that I understand it, it was several OEMs came together and wanted to reduce um, uh, improper warranty claims, essentially. Um, and they came up with, they started with one, then it, you know, branched out into multiple different certifications. That's my understanding with it. Um, and I preach to everybody, any certification is better than no certification. I don't think you're going to be a better service tech because of insert name of certification company but I believe that the cool thing about certifications that I really like is that to maintain those certifications, you have to continue your education. So that's the biggest thing. So I preach certifications to everybody just because in order to maintain it, you have to continue your education. Mm-hmm. You know, every year you got to go to training classes. And mm-hmm. um, that's the important thing, in my opinion, you know, yeah. trying to make sure that we, we maintain these. Yeah. You know, but, it's, I always try and make it as simple as possible. I mean, if you look, if you boil it down to best practices, right, and you hear that all the time now, but best practices, really, if you want to eliminate the vast majority of failures as far as mechanical, I'm not talking about the electronic side so much. Yeah. But the mechanical side, I think. It all comes down to the startup and commissioning thing. Right, that's what I preach. You know, you talk about the certification. I talk about certification on the startup and commissioning because a lot of what they talk about in these in these commissioning or these um, certification classes has to do with finding the root cause. Right, you got a best practice. You know how best to install this compressor, how best to troubleshoot an electrical circuit. All these things are important because what they lead back to is what was the root cause of the failure, right? And a lot of times that answer may not be comfortable. It may be messy. Like, you know, for example, you've got a, a compressor that's drawing high amps. You know, I used to cover the, the phone doing technical service and then for field service. You'd get to a job, compressor drawn, instead of, you know, 17 amps, it's drawn 21 amps, right? Voltage checks fine. Everything's okay. Then you find out the power factor to the place is like 0.87, right, or 0.86. Well, that's the root cause. But as a technician you've got two options. You can replace that compressor and it's going to be like that movie Groundhog Day. You're going to be doing this year in, year out. Well, the thing is, you don't have control over the power factor, right? You know, I don't think too many building owners are going to let you do some, you know, calculation on a notepad, run out and buy a bunch of capacitors and start, you know, sliding them into all the electrical boards. No, no, so that's a conversation you need to have with the owner if you can even find them. So, you know, that's one side of it. But the other side is if you've got a slow leak, 
if you've got poor voltage, if you've got any of these kinds of things, if you do a proper startup and commissioning, you are going to identify and eliminate all of those issues. You mentioned stop or start a uh, proper startup yourself. Yep. That eliminates the vast majority of why things fail. It's yeah. very simple, right? Compressors die because of flooding, overheating, and misdiagnosis, right? So if you follow best practices, if you find the root cause, you're going to solve most of these issues. So the fact that we still have this relatively high failure rate of field operative field related failures tells me a lot of times that's not being done or the equipment is just so far gone that you don't have the, you don't have anything to work with right yeah. you know I, I, mean? I have a, a you know a, a couple questions to ask on failures um i guess the first one is how have i mean how has dan faust changed their design or have they whatsoever changed their design as far as um i remember when txvs became more popular when 13 series became mandatory yeah, in the midwest right? Seven, right, yeah. so um all the distributors were coming around they, they were saying um if guys don't wrap their txvs they're going to burn the txvs up mm -hmm. and at that time uh, there, it was very unpopular to braze with nitrogen, at least around me. Anyone I talked to, um, it was like general practice not to braze with nitrogen. Mm -hmm. So um, my question is, how bad of an effect does that have on TXVs to not braze bad. with? Yeah. It depends on <laughs> the size of the system. Um, it think, I mean, if your filter dryer is sitting close to the TXV, you'll generally plug the filter dryer first. Yeah. If you've got long lines of remote condenser and... You know, you've got guys using rosebud tips, putting these seven eighths inch liquid lines and things like that in, um, you know, and putting T's, all kinds of brazing stuff in. You can plug it with um, copper oxide, right? If it occurs downstream of the filter dryer. So generally speaking, you always want to bleed nitrogen through a system only because A, it keeps it dry because HFC, uh, uh, POE oil suck back moisture like crazy. So oh, yeah. um, it just basically purges most of that moisture out of there. Number two, you don't have the copper oxide in there, which is going to break up and eventually see any pressure drop that occurs in the system is going to consume energy, right? It, it doesn't matter if it occurs on an air side with a pressure drop or the refrigerant side, it's going to burn energy. If you're burning subcooling by pressure drop, you're consuming energy. So generally speaking, from a standpoint of long period of time, a clean system is the best system. So absolutely purge with nitrogen. You don't need to purge while you're brazing. You just need to bleed it through the system when it's loose and fitted together so that you displace the air out of it. Right. If you want to tighten it up after that or stop, you know, stop bleeding it as soon as you start to braze it in, I'm even okay with that because you've got 99% of the air and moisture out of there. You're not really going to produce any copper oxide. So my, my answer is absolutely bleed nitrogen through the system. Well, I, I know that is definitely a best practice, but I would think that as a manufacturer, they would almost plan for people not to do what they're supposed to do because you just know people mm -hmm. and their habits in general. Okay, so let's take a TXV. What are your two options? You put a fine screen in the TXV, which catches the debris, but then what happens? The screen gets plugged up. Locked. Yep. Yeah. There's a larger it. screen in there that lets all this crap go through. Well, the TXV gets that, plugged. Yeah, it just goes through the TXV, and you hope that it doesn't, you know. So 
I mean, I'm I'm being a little silly, but that is really what it comes right. down to. There's, I mean, the TXV is a very basic device. It's a base. It's it's a small orifice with a needle valve going right. down inside of it. If you really want to look at it, so anything that gets in there is going to plug it. Now, copper oxide, believe it or not, is not the worst thing. Copper oxide is worse at blocking check valves and things like that. What the worst thing that 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 plugs TXVs are, dirt. yeah, dirt. Re- oil residues, th- anything that will varnish up when undergoes. I, I I agree. I think it's a lot of it's careless practices from technicians, and, and you know what? Nowadays, to be honest with you, uh, they're getting these filter dryers and they're putting them inside the unit. Mm-hmm. So let's say you know you're doing some work on the lines. The first time you start it up, bang, you know, right to the TXV, and it gets blocked. So, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I think a lot of it comes down to the technician and their practices. But has yeah. the uh, speaking of like varnish and gumming up TXVs, the, that whole rust inhibitor thing, the rust inhibitor, mm-hmm. how bad did that affect Dan Foss? It was hell. Hmm. Um, I'll be honest with you. Um, when it started, um, we had the majority stake in it because we had the majority of the TXVs out in systems right now. So just because of market share, it started with us and it, the finger was pointed at us and we spent a ton of resources trying to figure out what was wrong. Now, if everybody thinks you're at fault and you come back and say, oh, no, no, it's not us. We're not at fault. How do you prove that? Well, yeah. what happened was our competitors' valves started to plug up. Mm-hmm. And the common denominator then was all of the TXVs are plugging up. It has to be something else inside the system. Well, once we started doing, you know, autopsies on the TXVs and we see this, you know, thick tar-like residue on the um, the uh, TXVs, it didn't take long to, to isolate that out of the oil in, in the oil that was in the sump. So generally speaking, it was a relatively easy fix, but Dan Foss and the manufacturers of TXVs didn't have the worst. The worst are the technicians or and the owners and contractors who have warranties on these things that they have to honor. Okay, so yeah, it didn't fail right away, but what happens if it fails six or seven years down the road or whatever when it's outside of warranty? Who's going to cover that, right? Or if it is a warranty call, who's going to cover that, right? You know, mm-hmm. that, that to me, the, the, the contractor and the technicians are always the ones that end up holding the bag, of right? And, and, that, and that's the worst part of it because, you know, they had no control over that whatsoever. And it's not, even if you use that, uh, that what is it called? The, the AC Renew? China. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even if you use oh, yeah, that, it's not a very easy, quick and easy fix, no matter what no. you do. You know what I mean? It's a time consuming process. You got to everything apart, right? You can't flush it through the TXV or the, or the compressor or anything, if I remember correctly. So, yeah. How we got a couple now anyways. What's the practice? You put it in one end and let it shoot out into a bucket in the other end or something? Or how do you... I uh, thought AC Renew, you just put in the system and let it run. Yeah, you no, inject AC it. AC Renew is an additive. Yep. It's it's essentially oh, a... It's not a flush. Okay, yeah. AC Renew is Zero Ice, which okay. was an additive in the 90s. They changed the name to AC Renew and Calgon bought it, I think, is what happened. But Okay. Yeah, it's it's an additive. There's there's That's a whole nother stream. 
yeah. topic because you can talk forever about the additives and what they do. Mm-hmm. It's so probably the only time I ever saw manufacturers of compressors and systems and that promote any kind of additive was during that period of yeah, time. Yeah, they're like, please try this before replacing the TXV. That was that was <laughs> a lot of OEMs thing was try this stuff first because they knew that backlash was coming. I can like remember contractors chat. and you'd see a table with nothing but job sheets and a bottle of that stuff sitting on top of it, man. Yeah. We have a couple questions in the chat, and I think I can answer some of these, but maybe you can comment on them, James. Someone was asking um, when you guys were going to make a rebuildable TXV with changeable power heads. You guys already do, right? You guys have your your TXVs. You have a kit just like some of the other manufacturers that you can build different tonnage. Here's why Dan Fox does not have a removable power head. Okay. Number one, we we use the other way around. The main failure of power elements is contamination and heating, right? Gotcha. The diaphragm is made of tempered steel, harder than heck. So the, the the way that it reacts to force is through the temper. So if you overheat it, you take the temper out. Well, the easiest way to do that with our you know stainless steel bimetallic valves is you just don't let heat transfer into the valve body because of the way it connects. And we'll talk about that in a bit. The other way is we you, you build these power elements in a clean room if you walk into a dan foss factory where they manufacture our txvs there's one thing you won't see and that's people it's all robotic it's all clean room got it so there is no contamination that goes into these power elements so their failure rate from that is very low um putting together a power element in the field is not a clean environment right so right you look at it from that standpoint right or wrong that's the tack we take now i understand if you have if you're going to change the the refrigerant in the system it's easy to change the power element with another version but you know one of the one of the big reasons of txv failures that we eliminated was through the adoption of that stainless steel power element hermetically sealed that you can't remove and once you went to that, the amount of power element failures we had went into the toilet. Got you. But you guys do make a, a, a larger TV valves. We do have a removable power element, but those are the big, big, big valves. But you guys do make a uh, like a buildable TXV though too. Right? Yeah, yeah. We have something that basically has multiple orifices in it. That yeah, you so you can kind of like a uh, an aftermarket truck stock item so you can build yeah. multiple valves yeah, yeah. yeah. minimize and maximizer kits we do have that yes the other question that was in there that i thought was a good one too do you guys build all your txvs in the same place i think i've seen denmark on there haven't i denmark and mexico denmark and mexico okay. there's a really ac valves because of cost yeah in, in mexico because they we make you know several million txvs that's hard to picture right can you imagine like a 53-foot tractor trailer loaded up with TXV? Oh, TXV. Yeah, TXV. Diving through it like Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, <laughs> you know, 1.6 billion TXVs a year or something like that. That's crazy. That you have, crazy there's a that. big a big warehouse or manufacturing facility not too far from me. It's about two hours west of Chicago, uh, just south of the Wisconsin border. Monster building with a big Dan Foss logo on it. Yeah, we have a couple of factories. We have the drives division and motor control. Dan Foss is like Honeywell or United Technologies. They make everything. Multiple different companies, right? Yeah, they're just a giant conglomerate. Yeah, you know. 
but uh, we could, I'd be honest with you. I'm not hundred percent sure, mm. you know, I'll, cause I'll be driving back in the day when you have the rental car, right. You're driving along, you're going, Holy crap. There's a Danfoss factory in the middle of nowhere. Right. You know, <laughs> I didn't know where that was. Right. You know, yeah, so, yeah, uh, there. Adam, I just did a quick Google search and it says tour the Danfoss drives high power competency in Illinois. Hmm. Yeah. So it, oh, it looks like they maybe make some drives in That's Illinois. Probably a pre-COVID, you know, come give us a tour. Of yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's on the door today. Are you guys yeah. going to be at AHR this coming uh, time around, Jamie? Well, we were there last year. It was kind of funny because the aftermarket division that I'm with, we partnered with a distribution firm called Mar <clears throat> Motors and Armatures and things yeah. like that. Hmm. And at first I was kind of worried that, you know, we would lose a lot of the traffic, but, the thing is, when people come to AHR, Ashray, Ashtray, whatever you want to call it, you know, they're not coming to look at our TXVs. They're coming to look at drives and supermarket and all that kinds of stuff, right? You know, hey, do you want to look at my TXV? No, I'm good, man. But when we were part of Mars on the distribution side, the traffic coming through the booth were really the boots on the ground, guys that actually wanted to hear your story. So to me, it was a much better outreach now. And I really enjoyed some of the conversations I had. And to be honest with you, there's still a lot of misinformation out there because, you know, Dan Foss is still kind of new on the block. There's still guys that think, you know, oh, you're stainless steel bells. You need to use, you know, high content silver and use flux and do all this kind of stuff. No, you don't. Here, let me show you why. Yeah, right? you got the copper coated ones, right, on the inside yeah. where you do that. Yeah. yeah. I deal with the ice machine OEMs a lot, so I know it's like a whole different brazing process and yeah. you don't it's have to so do it. so quick, but you got to do it right. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a whole new thing. And I, it, yeah, it, to try to describe it on here, you got to see it, but, or you can read the instructions, but it's a whole new brazing. It, it seems backwards because you heat the, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. first rather than yeah. the belt. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more thermal mass than that tiny little connection does. I can teach the receptionist at Danfoss how to brave that valve in, in about 45 seconds. So we she had a really, really my instructions, but it's done. Yeah. Right? We had yeah, a really funny question come into the chat, and I got to say it right now. It says, do you guys it, – it, it, it's a funny one, but Zach had said from Shop Talk, he said, do you guys play your competitors in a, in a yearly softball tournament? Because that would be really funny if we guys oh, if we okay. had, like, Sporlin and you guys playing each other in a softball <laughs> tournament every year. I just remember seeing guys from Dan Voss and Sporlin. I think you'd need to have the paddles out for, you know, heart to failures and stuff like that if we ever had a baseball game. But um, no, we don't. Um, everybody is now, everybody is so separate. Now, when I do like the educational shows and the trade shows, yeah. we all get along. Yeah, like, yeah. We yeah. all pile into a table in a bar somewhere and laugh it up because it's, it's only business, right? You right, I mean? right. We're all going to wear different shirts as we go through life, right? That's, yeah. And let, let's face it, Copeland doesn't make a bad compressor. Spoiling doesn't make a bad TXV. No. You know, if they did, they what wouldn't about, have the market share. We all do. LG. You know, so <laughs> it, that, that's the way it works. Now, some people, you know, what I face is I face the whole market where people buy with their hearts a lot of times. You know, if, you're, if you've used a Spoiling dryer and that's all you've used and you never had any problem with it, why would you switch to something else? You know, just because it's a little bit more efficient or whatever – that's the issue. Now, if I go into an engineer on an OEM and I said, look, I can keep your particulate much lower in your system. I can give you a lower pressure drop. I can give you a longer life expectancy. Here's my cost is competitive. They're all over that. Yeah. Right? Because, but that is, you know, dollars, cents and technical. 
but in the field, you really have to have a different approach. So, you know, we're all in the same boat together, whether you're Sporlin, Emerson or whatever, you know, so we all get along, but no, we don't play baseball. <laughs> yeah. It'd be fun, but yeah. I love playing baseball. Man. That'd be a great, like, YouTube series is like competitors. We, we should, we should like try to get that going with a d- several different manufacturers where they all play each other in a softball game. You're like a bad John candy split up or spit. Yeah. Up. That'd be pretty funny. <laughs> Steve Martin, John candy. <laughs> oh man. All right. Oh man. But anyways, guys, what do you think? It's uh, we're actually over tonight. We're yeah, I think over. it's time to wrap it up. No, yeah. Well, I got like 97 other bullet points of super fun questions to ask you. Maybe if you're up for it, we can come back and do a part two eventually here. And, yeah, uh, you know, there's other things. I mean, there's a lot of questions I get on internal, external, over, uh, internal, external equalization and all that kind of stuff. And when do we use it? And, you know, mm. all that stuff is very important because, again, if you don't know it and you're not exposed to it, you know, it can be very confusing for a lot of people. Yeah, because I think in general, a lot of, you know, technicians just look at a TXV and be like, hey, it's just a metering device, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't always need to know internally how it works, but it really helps to diagnose it properly if Man. you know how it works. Quick quick question before we go on that point. Do you think it could benefit Adam and in his, in his experiment by adding two external equalizing TXVs? Well, an external equalized TXV is only used when you have a refrigerator distributor. If you have mm-hmm. a refrigerator distributor evaporator, you absolutely 110% require an external equalized TXV. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're always going to underfeed the evaporator because the pressure drop between the TXV outlet and the sensing bulb, whatever temperature equivalent that is, is going to be added to your static superheat. But you, you hey, should be able to test that, I imagine, right, by production. checking. No, you don't have to test it. If you have a refrigerator distributor, you need to yeah, have you can it. see it. Yeah, you can yeah. see it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure most of the – a lot of the OEMs come with the uh, am I incorrect on residential? There are I, think a lot of them. I don't think yeah. they make an internal AC bill. Right. I, yeah. I think they're all external. Yeah. 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 But interesting. Cool. All right. Yeah, it's been good. Well, I think we decided we're gonna have to have a part two here eventually, Gene. Oh yeah, for sure. So but looking forward to it. It was a great it was a great conversation. I had fun actually. I tell you what, I I just I sat back and here. The most fun I've ever had drinking 10 and a half ounces of water. Where the hell this thing is? <laughs> you were drinking water? What was wrong with you? I thought that was I straight know. vodka, man. And I'm watching you guys drink like mystery fluids out of mason jars, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there you go. Yeah, the land of hillbilly. I'm not, I'm not secretive. It's rogue hazelnut brown. Super good brown ale. Tastes like coffee. Yummy. Blue I got drunk free. one time. Look at that. I was so thirsty the next day, man. Like my whole body was like, yeah, that'll do that. Yeah. Like, yeah. All righty, guys. We got to wrap it up and uh, and get out of here tonight. So, Jamie, thanks for coming on to the show. Really appreciate it. I don't know if we talked exactly about what we were supposed to talk about, but it was fun. That's how our show it works. Happens. It's, 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 it's relaxed. It's an organic conversation. That's over time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, organic conversations. As long as we come out of it a little bit smarter than we did going into it, then. I learned stuff, man. That means a good day for me. So. Hey, there awesome. you go. <laughs> Alrighty, guys. All you guys out there watching, we appreciate you guys showing up. Like I said, we'll have to have Jamie come back on here and uh, stick to a TXV topic next time, if we can, if there's no other super fun things that distract us. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, guys, we will see you all next time, next Friday night at 9 p.m. See you. See you.